Because um, I want to talk with you today on this subject of defeating your greatest uh, enemy. And the fact is, sometimes the battle rages pretty significantly around us. Sometimes it's not so much, but the battle never goes away. The battle is uh, always there. And the sooner we grasp it and the magnitude of the battle, the greater will be our chances of victory. Some of you remember the old Peanuts cartoon, you know, Charlie Brown and Linus. Y'all remember Charlie Brown and Linus? And there's one particular cartoon where Linus and Charlie Brown are, are walking along and they're talking to each other. And in this particular cartoon, Linus says to Charlie Brown, I don't like to face problems head on. In fact, I think the best way to solve problems is just to avoid them. Linus goes on to say, in fact, this is a distinct philosophy of mine. No problem is so big or so complicated that it can't be run away with, uh, run away from. Now, don't you wish you could just run away from the battle sometimes? Don't you wish you could just say, I don't have to deal with this. I'm not going to deal with this. But the fact is, you can't. The battle rages, and sometimes the intensity of it is hotter than other times. But until we go home in the kingdom, there will always be this war going on, this battle. And the Bible makes that very clear. And that's why we need to understand the problem. We need to know what's going on. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, A man who does not understand the nature of the problem he is confronting is a man who is already doomed to failure. He goes on to say, Christian people are like first-year college students. They think at first that every subject is pretty simple that there's no real difficulty. But we all know what is likely to happen to them when they face an examination. You see, he says, the first thing you have to do is to understand the nature and the character of your problem. So we have to realize that we are called in the Christian life to battle, not to a life of ease, to a battle, to, to warfare, to a wrestling match, and he says, to a struggle. And that's true. We're all called to that. But there's good news. And the good news is that we can have victory in this battle. And the scripture shows us how. And that's what I want us to look at today. If you're physically able to do so, stand with me. And I want to read two verses out of uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Peter writes and says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Lord, uh, we pray that this morning again you will use your word in our lives. And, uh, Father, that you will teach us about how to uh, walk in victory in the midst of the battle. And that, Father, through Peter's uh, words, your uh, scriptures, we will understand a game plan, a strategy that we can employ against our greatest enemy. So teach us now. We're listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, when Peter uh, wrote these words to the church, it, the church was suffering. It was undergoing great persecution. It was under great duress. And this, this persecution and this suffering, this battle they were facing was causing great anxiety in their life, which is why Peter tells them, look at verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He tells them, look, I know that you're undergoing a, a great stress in your life, this battle that they were facing. And by the way, by implication of the context, this is a spiritual battle. It's more than just it had physical consequences. They were suffering persecution, but it was a spiritual battle that he is referring to there. Um, and, and Christians need to understand that the devil uh, attacks inwardly. He attacks outwardly. Sometimes he attacks us uh, just internally with emotional kinds of battles or uh, stressful kinds of things, worry kinds of things, fearful kinds of things. And sometimes those things can have outward manifestations. And sometimes the battle is allowed by God. And it's just an outward battle. It's some kind of almost physical kind of, of battle that you're facing. And Peter knows that for them. And what he's trying to do is say, because he cares, you cast yourself upon him. And then having cast yourself on him, he says, then here's some things that I want you to do. And so he exhorts us 
with a couple of commands in these two verses that we read that will help us be fully aware and fully conscious of the battle that we're facing. Because if we don't take this battle seriously, if we just think, this, uh, think lightly of the, the battle that we face, you are going to be devoured. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. So we have to take this very seriously, and Peter then gives us this, uh, 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 what I would call a strategy for victory. I don't want to show you three things about that. The first thing I want to show you is, he tells us in verse 8, to be sober uh, for the battle. To be sober-minded is the term here in the Greek, to be sober-minded and to be watchful. It, this is an imperative and the whole idea is to be constantly alert and never drop your guard. Now, I've told you enough and taught you enough through the years to tell you that when you see an imperative, you need to recognize that this isn't an option. This is a command. So the imperative is a command. Uh, uh, Peter is writing uh, the Holy uh, Scriptures, and he says, look, look, you need to be sober-minded. This is a command. If you're going to uh, uh, walk in victory... If you're going to overcome your greatest enemy, by the way, the Bible says that we, we wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those three are, are combined together. But of course, the mastermind behind all of it is the devil. But when Peter writes, be watchful, be sober-minded, this is a command. And maybe, just maybe, some scholars think he is reflecting on his own experience. In Luke chapter 22, he's, he's, Jesus told Peter this. He said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And he also mentions that when you, when you fail, basically Jesus said to him, I've prayed for you. Don't give up because when you, when you return, uh, God will use you uh, to strengthen your brothers. And so some believe that Peter is reflecting here. He knows what it means to to have failed at being watchful, to have failed at being uh, sober-minded. And so he's writing to tell them, look, let me just, let me just tell you right up front, this battle is going to require sober-minded uh, sober response. Aristotle once postulated this phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. I don't know if you've heard that. It's been used in science through the decades. Nature abhors a vacuum. And here's what Aristotle essentially meant. He meant by that that there's no true empty space. Because even what we sometimes think about, so we look around and say, well, there's a lot of empty space in here. Not really, because it's filled by air and carbon dioxide and all of those kinds of gaseous things that are, are part of the, the atmosphere. He says, no, he says, nature abhors a, a vacuum, meaning that if there is a vacuum, uh, you have to force it to be a vacuum. You have to pump the air out or you have to get the gases out and everything. But by nature, something is going to fill the empty space. That's just according to the laws of physics, he argued. And so if there's a hole, something will fill it. Now, that has been ex uh, uh, expanded to represent not only just the material world, but also the, the spiritual world. If there are vacuums in the way you think, your mind, uh, if there are vacuums in your uh, emotion and uh, um, the internal man, something is going to fill that. If there's a vacuum in the culture, something is going to rush in and fill that. Uh, and in the same manner, uh, the devil, your great enemy, looks for a gap in you, looks for a vacuum in you, looks for a vulnerability in you. And the reason he does is because he wants to seize it and he wants to fill it. Listen to this. You have been designed, the Bible says, to be filled by the Spirit of God. And by the way, you are designed, um, uh, Solomon wrote, in such a way that only God can fill your shape. But the devil is trying to fill it with all kinds of other things. And you know, he'll use good things, but he'll use people. He'll try to get you to substitute people for God. He'll, he'll use uh, uh, good things in your life, uh, uh, friends and family and uh, colleagues and, and, and spouses. And uh, he'll use all of those kinds of things if he can get those things to replace God. He'll use uh, other material things. He'll, he'll use money. He'll, he'll use or make you dependent on substances if he can or addictions if he can. He's try, here's what he, he'll use religion. Listen to this. Did you know he'll use religion? Because he, he doesn't mind you being religious. What he, don't, what he doesn't want of you is that you are uh, into the relationship with God. 
So he'll let you replace a relationship with God with religion. So he just wants to fill that, that vacuum there that is really designed to hold God. And his whole reason for doing that is he does not want you to experience the dynamic of a relationship with God because you become completely and totally dangerous to, to uh, what he wants to do. So what does it mean for you and I to be sober-minded? Well, let me give you three things that it means. Number one, it means that you recognize your adversary for who he is. Peter makes clear that the devil is our enemy, right? He is our greatest enemy. So Peter says we must be sober because we know who the enemy is. We must take it seriously. We can't just trivialize the devil. Our world has trivialized the devil. Our world has you know, made him the character in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork and kind of trivialized him. We cannot make that mistake. In fact, Paul wrote and said that your adversary uh, uh, masquerades as an angel of light. The devil, he says, masquerades as an angel of light. Listen to me. you got to recognize him for who he is. He's not going to show up in a way and say, here I am. I'm the devil, and here's what I want you to do. Because most of you, I'd say, I'd say a good 85% of you in this audience would immediately say, I know who you are. I'm not doing that. No, the fact is, I bet all of us would say, if the devil showed up and said, I'm the devil, and here's what I'm going to require of you, or here's what I'm going to try to move you to, most of us say, whoa, 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 whoa. I know enough. So he doesn't come at us that way. He doesn't attack that way. He masquerades as an angel life. That's why he may, he may suggest things. You say, well, that makes sense. That, that would work, and it already works with what I want anyway. And so he can attack us. That We have to recognize who he is uh, and recognize that he's, not going, to, he's going to be very deceptive when he uh, approaches us. The second thing that it means to be sober-minded is it means that your mind is ruled by God. And the picture that is painted for us in Scripture is that our mind is not compromised by intoxication and confusion. Um, in fact, the word there for sober actually means, uh, would be the same word we use for the antithesis would be for drunkenness. So instead of being drunk, be sober. Don't be confused. Don't be intoxicated. Don't let the devil intoxicate you. That's what Peter is saying. Don't let the devil confuse you, but let your mindset be on God and the things of God. So Paul writes and tells us, uh, uh, set your things on things above. Paul writes and tells us that we are to renew our mind, and that's very important that we understand uh, why we need to renew our mind. Several years ago, NPR, National Public Radio, had a popular radio show on. I don't know if it's still on. It's called The American Life. And uh, in that series, they featured an episode titled, listen to this, The Devil Inside of Me. And the show asked various people if they ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice that held them bondage to unwanted thoughts. And according to the show's host at that time, he said this, it was like people had been waiting all their lives for somebody to ask them this question. Again, the question was if they ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice. Here are some of the responses to that question. One man said, I certainly know the voice that you're talking about. Another man said, the voice is irresistible always, and I'm in the thrall of that voice. A woman said, uh, the voice is totally out of control. Uh, it's got, it's got a, this life of its own, and I can't tame it anymore. Another woman says, I actually have a name for the voice. I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have an extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. One man responded and said, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance in every part of my feelings. Another woman said she had just gotten engaged, and she says um, she hears the voice saying to her, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take the ring away because he's going to find out the truth about you. And at the end of the episode, the host asks, um, he asks this question, do you feel like the voice is winning? 
And the reply by a woman is this. Well, right now, yeah, I think it's winning. I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. Interesting, right? Responses to, uh, to this pull, to this voice. Well, it's a perfect illustration of why the Bible tells us we need to have our minds renewed. This is one of the great battlefields of your, uh, your life and soul. And that's why there's so much said about it uh, in the Scripture, about uh, submitting your mind and about setting your mind and about renewing your mind. Why? Because the devil's going to attack there. And he's not going to attack you. Listen, he's going to attack, uh, attack there deceptively. What you put in your mind will set the tone in the course of your life. So if you put garbage in, well, the devil will exploit it. And he'll use it to compromise you and to control you. Then here's a, here's a third thing that it means to be sober-minded. It means to be alert and responsive. You see, if the believer is not sober, he will not be alert enough to conquer the attacks and the temptations of the devil. And sooner or later, he'll be overcome, led into sin, and destroyed. I saw a video clip uh, some time back, and I, I just as I was working on the message this week, I thought about this particular clip, and it, it's a street fight between two men. And I don't know what the setting was, but they're outside of a restaurant and it was a news site, and they were showing this brawl that broke out between these two guys. But it really wasn't a brawl at all because one man was drunk. And he seemed to be the instigator, and he's staggering around and everything, you know, and he's, and, and he's trying to throw punches at this guy. And the other guy's just kind of stepping back and this sort of stuff and stepping to the side. And the drunk guy, st- I mean, he can't hardly stay on his feet, and he's trying to throw these punches and, and everything. And finally, this guy gets tired of it and just cold cocks him, boom, and drops him. And uh, I don't know what pr- uh, uh, provoked it. I don't know what the outcome from there was. That's all I remember the clip. But, but as I was working this message, I thought, that's why Peter tells us to be sober, alert, because your enemy, look, if you're not alert and your mind is not controlled or under the, the authority of Scripture, guess what? You're like a drunk man trying to find a guy that's going, I can take you out anytime I want to. You're just staggering about in life, swinging and whiffing at the enemy. And so we're told that we are to be sober-minded. That is alert so we can be responsive. The point is your mind must be under the influence of God. Now listen, you don't have to live in fear of the enemy, but you must live alertly. And that leads to the second thing that we must also do, and that is we must be sensitive to the adversary. Verse 8 reminds us of that. Now, hang on, and you'll understand what I mean by sensitive. Not like, oh, Mr. Adversary, I'm so sensitive. That's not what I... We have to be sensitive to his tactics. We have to be sensitive to how he operates. You must never believe... Listen, listen, class. Listen, those of you who are joining us by television, live stream, radio, all of that, you must never believe that the devil is your friend. You must never believe that, that he's looking out for you. The devil is never going to look out for you. I don't care what lie he tells you. He is never out for your good. He is out for your destruction. Peter says it right here. Your adversary, the devil, is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking someone that he might do what class? Devour, destroy. He is never seeking your welfare. He is never looking to do, uh, do good for you. He's always looking to ruin you and to destroy you. There are two words in verse 8 that you need to understand. The first word is the word adversary. Let me tell you in the Greek, the Greek word there in the New Testament, what it means. It means a legal opponent in a lawsuit. It's a legal term. It identifies uh, a legal opponent. This is your opponent in this, this uh, legal case. And it is the picture, listen, of the devil standing in the position of a prosecutor against us, all right? So if you will, kind of get this image in your mind. There is this heavenly court, uh, so to speak. And the devil comes to that court and he says to the judge uh, of all judges, do you know about Ray? Let me tell you about Ray. 
Now you insert your name and the devil says, uh, let me tell you, God, about whoever. Let me tell you, and I want to just tell you, they're not as good as you think they are. Or God, they keep messing up or they have failed and, and on and on it goes. The Bible says he is the accuser of the brethren. So the devil is accusing you. He's accusing you. He's accusing you. He's accusing you before God. I'll tell you in a few minutes, just hang on. Why does he do that? Because he's also a defeated foe. So if he's defeated, why does he keep accusing us? Just hang tight. I'm going to, I'm going to answer that question. But so he's standing there, if you will. It's like this, this, almost like this heavenly courtroom. This is the best way to picture what Peter is talking about. And so your adversary is up there uh, to bring condemnation against you. But here's the problem. He has a problem. He can go and he makes his case. And by the way, all of us have given him plenty of stuff to make a case on. Your best day, you're still guilty. All, he can make a case against all of us. So what's his problem, though? So he makes this case, and then here's what the response is. Romans 8.1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he goes before the court of God, and he's, he, began to, he, he begins to accuse you, and he accu- accuses you, and, accu- and what is the answer? Wait a minute. Christ steps up and says, there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't matter what your accusations are. They may be true as can be, but Jesus has already taken the penalty of what you're accusing uh, that uh, saint of. And so so it doesn't matter what you're There's now no more condemnation. Isn't that cool? But he keeps hammering away. He keeps hammering away. You see, but our unfavorable verdict of condemnation, and by the way, our sin, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Our unfavorable verdict of, common, uh, of condemnation because of our sin has been removed through Christ's death on the cross for our sin, but our adversary just continues to try to argue and accuse and lay guilt on us, and he does that in order to undermine our relationship to God. So that's the first word, adversary. The second word in this verse is the word devil. Now, the Greek word for devil in this passage is diabolos, and it means a slanderer, a false accuser. Think about that. The Bible calls him the slanderer. The, have you ever had somebody? Have you ever had somebody say something about you that wasn't true, that wasn't fair, or, or, or accurate? Yeah. How many of you have had that happen in your life before? Gosh, that means most of you. And and those who didn't raise your hand, you're just not telling the truth today, which is an accusation. But but we've had that experience, haven't we? And and. And somebody, and maybe they even told it to other people. Oh, you need to know about uh, Chuck, or you need to know about Ray, or, or, or you need to know about Chase, or you need to know about Bradley. Here's some things you need to know about them. And it's not true. Here's the picture here. The devil goes to God and says, oh, God, they're horrible people. They're on and on. And just begins to slander us and slander us. It's not based on truth. It's just based on, believe it or not, the devil wants to wound God. So you know how you can, he thinks he can wound God. He thinks he can wound God by picking on God's children. And so he says, let me tell you about them. I don't care whether it's true or not. He's the father of lies, the Bible says. He is the accuser of the brethren, as I said earlier. That's, what the, that's how, how the Bible defines him. He is the slanderer. And so he gets before God, and he begins to slander the children of God. He's wanting to wound God. You, he, you can't wound God, but the devil, it continues to try to wound God. But since our sins have been dealt with in Christ, why would he continue to do that? It doesn't, I mean, isn't that the question that it begs? So why would he continue to do that if... If, he, if he's defeated and if he 
knows he's lying and he knows God knows that he's lying. Why would he continue to do that? Listen, it's called harassment. And simply put, two reasons why I do it. Number one, he wants to undermine your relationship with God. And number two, he does it, look, simply put, because he hates God. He just hates God. And he wants to, he wants to attack the children of God out of spite for God. Our grandsons have been in this weekend, and Alice and I, we're, we're always amazed. We used to hear this when we were younger, you know, when we were raising our daughter and everything. We always hear, oh, if you think, if you think a, a, a child is great, you ought to have grandchildren. And I thought, the child is great. We, we love him. Oh, they were right. They were right. You can... You can have so much more fun with grandkids. You know? And, but I'll tell you this. Here's what I, 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 I would die for my grandson. I'd die for my daughter. I think I'd die for my son-in-law. <laughs> Those grandboys. Man, the oldest one throws his arm, threw his arms around my neck uh, when he uh, pulled in the driveway. We were waiting on him. We pulled in the driveway on Thursday, and he opens the door. He says, Pops, will you get me out? And throws his arms around me and says, Pops, I love you so much. What do you want? <laughs> what do you want? Look, I'm putty at that point. Don't you mess with my grandkids. Don't you mess with my kids. You start messing with my kids and my grandkids, and you're messing with me. Now, the devil hasn't figured that out yet. And so he messes with God's kids, but he doesn't know there's a heavy price coming down the road. And by the way, when you feel like you're under the attack of the devil, and you sometimes think, well, is God going to do anything? Maybe not yet. But it's coming. It's coming. And so he picks, on, he picks on the children of God because he wants to undermine our faith. I'll tell you that, talk about that as I close. And then he does it just because he hates God. And maybe he can irritate God by harassing the children of God. And so given who the devil is and how he operates, we have to be sensitive. All right, now, do you get it? We have to be sensitive to his schemes. That's what Paul called them. And we have to be sensitive to the fact that it says he's prowling around. What a graphic image, right, of a line that is stalking, looking for you. The devil is stalking you. He's looking. Don't, be, look, don't live in fear, all right? Don't be fearful, but be careful. Two different things. Don't be paranoid. Greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. But he is roaming about. He's looking. He's waiting for the vacuum. He's waiting for the gap that you open up so he can attack. I don't know if you know the name Steve Green. Steve Green uh, used to sing with a group. He sang for six years with a group uh, called the, uh, the Gaither Vocal Band, I think it was. And, uh, and with Bill and Gloria Gaither. And when they used to do these massive Coliseum uh, uh, concerts, and they, they like to do them in the round. They, everybody, they'd have all these artists, and they'd put them in the round, and then they would, you know, sing, and it was a show, and that kind of stuff. And Steve Green said that uh, uh, he, would, he got familiar with some of the riggers. These were the guys that traveled with them that would rig their lights and their sound, their speakers, the specialty stuff. And because it was in the round, they had to do special kind of rigging, and they would have to go up some, in some of these arenas 100 feet above a concrete floor. And they'd walk along a four-inch beam to set these lights and these uh, speakers in a, a certain way. And Steve Green asked him one time, he said, aren't you terrified when you get up there? And, and one of the guys, he said, told him, he said, you know, we're not as scared as you might think after doing it uh, for a while, and we're not scared to look down at a, f- a floor that's 100 feet down when we're rigging. It actually keeps us uh, doing the kinds of things that keep us safe. But then he said, what, what's really scary for us is when we're in, a, we're in a coliseum and we're having to do the rigging and we're up 
uh, 50, 60, 75, 100 feet. And, and that particular arena has a false ceiling just a couple of feet below the rigging. He said, now that scares us. And can you figure out why? Because he said, we lose our perspective of 100 feet. And just below us, it seems stable and solid. But, but if we go off the, 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 uh, the beam, we're going to go through the ceiling to our death. And so he, he said, that's what scares us because it gives you a false sense of security because you can't see the floor. Well, listen, uh, Satan, he operates with this, this kind of false sense of security. He tries to give you this false sense of security. He's prowling around waiting for you to forget the danger that is lurking all around you, to fool you with some false sense of security. Paul said this, Therefore let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So we have to remain sensitive to his schemes and his operations or we will become victims and he will devour us. Here's one last thing, though, that I want you to see this morning. Peter also tells us to be steadfast in our faith. Be steadfast in your faith. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. That's another imperative. It's another command. Resist him. Resist him. Now, wouldn't it be great if it said, God will resist him for you? Wouldn't that be great? Now, God will empower you and enable you to resist, but God won't resist for you. He'll give you the power to resist. That's why the Holy Spirit, uh, his power inside of you uh, is useful for building a defense. But he won't make you uh, uh, use your confidence and trust in God to resist the enemy. The, the Christian response to to satanic opposition is not to panic and it's not to, to flee, uh, but it is to be firm in resistance. That's what he tells us to be. And that word resist in the Greek is the same word that Paul gives us in Ephesians 6 and James gives us in James chapter 4. And both of them are about resisting the enemy in the context of spiritual warfare. And both of them understand and connect the idea that you can have victory, but that victory isn't through your might, it's through his might, and so you can resist the enemy. So we're given this command. Maybe again, uh, scholars say this is a part of Peter's personal testimony because uh, of the warning that Jesus had given him. And then, uh, you know, later Peter's answer uh, to Jesus, when Jesus told them specifically that he was going to go and, and die, Peter said, oh no, that's not going to happen with you. And he said, and besides, he said, I will, these others may desert you, but I won't desert you. I'll go with you. If I have to go to prison, I'll go with you. If I have to die with you, I will be with you from the get-go. And Peter says this, and in, within just hours, Peter has already failed and already denied him. Now, maybe I'm speaking to some of you today. Things are good. Right now, things are good. You say, Pastor, all the tough times that are going on out there, right now, they're not really that tough on me. I, I feel good. I, I've got some money in the bank. I've got my family and my kids are near. And life is pretty good overall. That may be you. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? <laughs> Don't feel guilty and say, well, should I not? It's, but, and you, and you might even add to it, and you know what? To the best of my knowledge, I'm following God. Here's what I would say to you. Dear friend, listen to me. Don't be fearful, but do be careful. Because your adversary is lurking down the road, just around the corner, in the tree line. Uh, your, your enemy is lurking, and everything might be good right now, and enjoy that, but don't, don't drop your guard. That's why we're told to be steadfast vigilant. Look, if it happened to Simon Peter, can it happen to us, class? You bet. And so we must, in the good season, I talked about seasons last week, in the good season, in the trying season, 
Whatever season it is, we are to be good soldiers, and that means we are to be ever vigilant, not fearful, but ever alert, careful, because we know this right here. We know what the enemy is up to. Out of sight does not mean out of mind in this case. Because you can't see him or because things aren't, aren't working right now, don't ever believe that he is not planning a strategic attack or assault to, if he can. He attacks the church. He attacks the believers. He attacks the kingdom. Don't ever drop your guard. Now, I don't know what it might be that the devil will use. It might look good. It might taste good. It might feel good. But the point is, we must resist, and by the way, we can resist, and we must be steadfast in our faith. We must not give up at all. Giving one step can lead to a second step, and before we know it, we've caved in, and we've been devoured by the enemy of our soul. So what is the devil trying to do? Why does he say, resist him firm in your faith? Now, it's interesting he didn't say resist him firm in the faith, representing the, the, the Christian faith. He said in your faith. It's personal. Your personal faith in Christ. Uh, resist him in, in that sense. Why? Because what is the devil trying to do? He is trying to steal your faith. He wants you to deny Jesus. He wants to rob you of your confidence and your trust in God. And so you have to understand. That's why you have to, to resist in faith. Faith is not dependent on your feelings. Now, feelings may accompany faith, but faith is not dependent on your feelings. Does that make sense? So you say, well, I, I don't feel very strong or I, I don't feel capable right now. You don't depend on your feelings. You put your faith in God. I'm trusting God in spite of how I feel. I'm trusting God for victory beyond how I feel. Now, feelings may be there. They may come. They may not be there now. They may come or they may work together from the very beginning of whatever battle you're in. But understand this, the devil is wanting to rob you of your faith. He wants you to deny Jesus. We've all seen people, you've seen people, you know people, that they seem like they were so connected to God. There was such a dynamic relationship that they had with God. You, you've met those people. And then one day, as quickly as they seemed turned on for Jesus, they were also turned off by Jesus. And they just finally decided, nah, I don't need that. Usually, not always, but usually that's associated with some kind of sin that they have decided they want in their life, and they've chosen the sin over the Savior. Not always, but almost always. I've watched it as a pastor. And, but, but what happened? What happened? Well, the devil robbed them. It's the parable of the soils, which I wish I had time to talk about. We'll do that some other time. But, but where the seed was germinating, it was trying to, to grow and sprout, and the devil snatched it before it could take root. That's what he wants to do. He wants to, he, he wants to rob you of your faith. Let me give you two things. Two things, and I want to wrap up with this. The first is this. The temptation will always be there to turn away from Christ and his righteousness. That's never going to go away. I wish it would, but it won't. The temptation will always be there to turn away from Christ and his righteousness. And the temptation to turn away from your faith and return to the world and its ways will always be there. It's always going to be there. The temptation to say, I can't do this. I've had people tell me, I can't do the Christian thing. And the, the fact is, you can't do the Christian thing. That's why he sent his Holy Spirit. But you have to make a choice. See, your choice does matter. You choose to surrender to him. You choose to let Christ be the Lord of your life. You choose to receive him as your Savior. You choose, if you're a Christian, to allow the Spirit of God to rule over your life, not just reside in your life. And those choices all make a huge difference. 
Because the temptation is always going to be there to turn from your faith. And the the devil is relentless. He's not going to stop harassing you. The second thing I would tell you is never believe that you alone are the devil's target. And I don't know that you'd ever say that or I'd ever say that, but we can have a lot of pity parties. Have you ever had a personal pity party? What was the old song? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat some worms. Did you know that song, Chuck? You didn't know that song, did you? Bradley, did you know that song? Could the, could the praise choir do that some Sunday? And you can add in there a verse that says, but God loves me. But, you know, it's, a, it's the self-pity song. Nobody loves me. I, I, here I am. And sometimes we can get like that with God. God, here I am trying to do, you know, and I just feel alone. I feel abandoned. And, and by the way, I will never leave you or forsake you is what the Scripture says. Jesus will never abandon you. Even when there's silence, it doesn't mean Jesus has abandoned you. The psalmist said, Lord, in, in one of his when, um, uh, uh, moments of kind of a discouragement, he said, Lord, where can I go that you're not? If I go down to the depths, you're there. If I go to the highest heights, you're always there. There's no place that you can go that he He's not. So you have to be careful, see, that you don't let the devil take you into some kind of, uh, of self-pity. And then self-pity, how will he use that against you? Well, I'm just, I'm the only one. Elijah in the cave. Remember, he went and sat in the cave and he said, God, I'm the only one left. He said that. He said, so God, just kill me and get me out of here. He said, I'm the only one left. And finally, when God spoke, and there was a period of of silence, a good bit of period of silence, finally when God spoke, he said, now, I want you to go down here to this city because I have thousands of people in that city that have not bowed the knee to the pagan gods that are followers of mine. Never believe that, that you're it or never believe that God has abandoned you. He hasn't abandoned you, and you're not alone. But here's what the devil will tell you. He'll say, yeah, why do you keep trying? to live for God. You're the only one. Nobody else cares. Why don't you just go the way of the world? That's what he will argue in your heart and your mind. Just go the way of the world. Everybody else has. Why don't you do it too? Don't you ever bite on that. He'll take that and try to use that against you. And that's why Peter said to us as believers that we must remember we're not alone because the same kind of suffering it's going on among your brothers throughout the world. You're not alone. That's what he said. So resist. Don't quit. Um, in the summer of 2020, there was an article in Popular Science Magazine by Sarah Scholes. And it talked about how each year about four dozen athletes, I'd never until I read the article, I'd never heard of this, but four dozen athletes gather in Minnesota for the St. Croix 40 winter ultra marathon. And here's the runners pay a lot of money to compete in this thing, and they embark on a 40 mile, this ultra uh, winter marathon, and, they, and it's run at night. It's run in January in Minnesota. And while they're running, they pull a sled that's packed with 30 pounds, over 30 pounds of supplies. And The article said in the environment they run in, you can literally die from standing still too long. Time out before I finish this. So why would anybody do it? But at any rate, over 25% of the runners will not finish the race. Most of these will drop out at a very interesting point, the article said. And that point is at 24 miles, Mike. It's called checkpoint 24. And in order for them to go on, they have to pass a a test. Now, they reach checkpoint 24 somewhere between 10 p.m. and midnight in January in Minnesota. Are you with me? Pulling a 30-pound pack sled. And here's what they have to do. Here's the test. If a runner is going to be able, allowed to take the next 16 miles, they've got to prove, he or she, that they have the skills to stay alive in the event of an emergency once they get on beyond this point. And so here's what they have to do at checkpoint 24. They have to stop. 
they have to, to set up their bivy sack. A bivy sack, I don't know if you know, that's a kind of their sleeping bag fits in it. And it's kind of a makeshift body tent kind of thing. They have to, they have to put that out, crawl inside it like they're going to uh, survive in the, the cold and stay there for up to 30 seconds. If they do, then they can get themselves out of it. They have to pack it back up. Uh, before they can be allowed to go on. And frankly, that sounds like the easiest part of the race to me. But when the temperature, the article said, when the temperature is near or below zero and you're covered in sweat, coming out of a very brief, warm respite from a sleeping bag, they said the temptation is to say, I can't go on any further. I've got to stop right here. The article said the most dangerous thing a runner can do in a race like this is simply stop. If they stop, they're dead. They'll freeze. Now listen, as I close, maybe maybe you're at the point of giving in or giving up on God, turning your back on your faith, and on the future. Maybe, maybe as you watch or listen to this message, you, you're at that point where you feel defeated. Or maybe you feel that, that you have so let God down that there is no path forward for you. Maybe that's where you are. Let me remind you of something today. The devil is a liar. He's a liar. And victory doesn't come to the one who quits, but to the one who is steadfast in their faith. Shortly before the Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome, he wrote these words. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. The victorious Christian stays in the fight by faith like the the runners in the St. Croix 40 Winter Ultra, the most dangerous thing you can do is to stop. I shared these two verses with our graduates on Thursday night at their banquet. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God forever. You know what the picture of that is? There's a stadium. Chapter 11 is what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it talks about all these great men and women of God and how they endured by faith. And did you know it flows right into those verses right there? Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by... so, Who is that great cloud of witnesses? You know what it is, class? It's all those who've come before us and have completed the race. They've kept the faith. And the picture is that they're in an arena and you are in a lane. And it's a lane that you can win in. And the picture is that they're cheering you on. Go. You got it. You can do it. And when you see them, you think, they did it. I can do it. And keep the faith. And so I want to tell you, you can defeat your adversary because your adversary has already been defeated. You be careful, but not fearful. And then you run the race. They did it. They remain steadfast. Many have come before us who have. And so can you. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that the the battle has been fought on Calvary and the cross, God. It's been fought and won, and we thank you for that. Father, I pray that we'll not allow the enemy of our soul to fill us full of lies that we believe. And I pray for any in this place today, Father, or watching by live stream or television, listening on radio, Father, that they're... They're wobbling right now. That the devil has rocked their world or shook their faith. I pray, God, today 
that you will remind them that you'll never leave them or forsake them. And that, Father, you'll help them whatever and wherever they are to resist the enemy of their soul by faith, to put their confidence and trust in you and carry on. I pray, Lord, for, uh, for those who may not know you and are just trying to, to make it through. Help them today to call on you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Help them to be transformed. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. Help them realize today that you have a new and a better way for their life. Cause them to call on you. And if that's you with heads bowed, eyes closed, or watching or listening, wherever you are, call on him. Say something like this in your heart and mean it. Lord Jesus, thank you. I'm lost in the way, but I want to be found. I call on you today. Would you come into my heart? Forgive me of my sins. I thank you that you died on the cross for them and that you've defeated the enemy. I'm tired of his lies. I want to live by truth. You are the truth, the way, and the life. And I invite you to become my Savior, transform my life. And those of you who say, I've done that, but I've just, uh, I've just lost my confidence in God. And my trust and my faith has wavered. You call on Him right now. You say, Lord, restore to me my confidence and trust in You. Help me, Father, to abandon the lies that I've listened to and help me to stay the course, God, in good and bad. Now, Father, hear these prayers. I know You do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation before we're gone? I'll be here at the front. Our staff will be on these aisles on the side. I want to invite you. If there's a decision for you to make or you prayed that prayer, I want to invite you to slip out and come and take one of us by the hand and say, here's a decision that I made today. Maybe you're here and you say, I'd like to join Ridgecrest. We'd love to have you. We're not perfect. We're not a perfect church. I'm not a perfect pastor, but we're healthy and you need a healthy place, if you don't have one, would you come and connect with Ridgecrest? Maybe you want to come and pray around this altar. You come and use it. Take advantage of it. If you're praying for someone about something, you come and you use the altar. Would you do that? As Bradley leads us, you slip out. Balcony and ground floor right now. You come on. We're here to receive you.